The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome to The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Dave Rose and my guest on The Profile this week will be a very familiar voice to listeners of Premier Christian Radio. And even before he was born, it was evident that God had a vision for Dr. Michael Youssef. Uh, Against doctors' recommendations to terminate the at-risk pregnancy, his parents chose life after God intervened. Uh, His mother gave birth and lived to see him surrender his life to the Lord at the age of 16 in 1964. Dr. Michael Youssef was born in Egypt. He's lived in Lebanon and Australia before coming to the United States, where in addition to leading the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta, Georgia, to a congregation of over 3,000, he's now heard and watched by millions around the world as the teacher on Leading the Way. Dr. Youssef, welcome to the profile. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me. Yes, good to be here. It's uh, what we normally do on these profiles is we yeah. go right back to, to the start of our guest's sure. life and talk right. a bit about that. But, but it seems in your case we need to go back uh, to even before you were born, right. Dr. Youssef, because that's, that's astonishing. Tell us about sure. uh, the, the very earliest yeah. stages of your life because you nearly weren't here at all. Right. <laughs> well, you have uh, summarized it very well in, 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 um, in your introduction. The reality is... Um, we in my family uh, had a we were eight of us there were eight boy uh, four boys and four girls and um, i was sort of at the bottom of the peak and and so what happened when my mother having this this was the 11th pregnancy because she lost some along the way they told her that she cannot truly go through this pregnancy because her health will not take it and um, and so three different doctors said we need to terminate the pregnancy if she's to survive. And um, she, they mentioned that to our pastor, pastor of our church in, in Egypt, a wonderful godly man. I had the joy of knowing him the first uh, 16 years of my life. And um, he basically uh, was totally disturbed in a dream or vision at night. He came and knocked on the door early in the morning and I said, please don't go through with this uh, because whoever he or she is going to serve the Lord. And, um, and so my mother, being really devout in her walk with Christ, she took that as a word from God. And she said, if I die, I die, but I've got to be obedient to God, not, uh, not the doctors. And so she went through with it. And uh, I am so uh, grateful f- for that. And uh, I... Also, as you mentioned in the intro, is that I had the joy of knowing her for 16 years and and watching her prayer life and role model for me. Uh, And she basically was disturbed, if you like, when I turned into a monster in my teen years. I mean, basically, (laughs) I was so rebellious uh, when my older brothers are extremely successful, when I was 10, one of my brothers was a bank president and um, well-known well family in the whole city. My whole family is renowned for being a godly Christian family. And so I rebelled against all of that. And uh, But at in March uh, of 64, uh, March 4 to be exact, 
I was tricked into going to a, a meeting, an evangelistic meeting, and uh, uh, in the end I thought I would just go to appease my other brother. And But I was the first one to go forward at that time. And so my mother was so thrilled in the fact that uh, I came to the Lord in March, and, and, and she almost felt, okay, she's been very, very ill, um, that the Lord you know, basically took her July of that year. It must have been a sense in both your lives that, that, that God had, had, had kept her alive so she could see that moment, exactly. so she could experience and, uh, that. In fact, she said, and now I can uh, die in peace knowing that I risked my life for uh, obedience to the Lord. And, and so, but there were a lot of turnings in my life. You know, number one, I looked at all my brothers as successful and doing well, and the ministry kind of did not hold an appeal to me. And uh, that's partly why I rebelled. What did you want to be when you were that age? Did you sense anything of what you wanted to do with your life in your teen years? Well, there are a lot of things. I want to be a lawyer, (laughs) among other things. And uh, whatever it is, I want to be as successful from the world's point of view as my brothers and sisters, for that matter. Um, The ministry, particularly at that time, back in in those days, was... um, was tedious was you know basically uh, <laughs> you know I, I remember even as my father and my brothers being elders and leaders in the church uh, they kind of um, had this motto you know um, Lord uh, you keep the pastor humble and we'll keep him poor <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, that is not going to be me. From a banking family, that's no, not what you want to hear, is it? Exactly. And, uh, and so in, in the sense, I said, well, if I'm a damaged goods, God cannot use me. And so I, I went wild. And uh, But God had other plans. And then later on, uh, uh, in, in the 60s, late 60s, uh, uh, the Six-Day War, which... People probably don't know unless they over sixty. Uh, it was it was a horrible experience to be living in the Middle East at that time uh, when Israel uh, really succeeded in uh, defeating three major countries: Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. And um, things got so dark and so bleak um, that I began to cry to God. I said, "Get me out of here." Mm. And God says, I'm going to take you out of here, but only so you can serve me. And he did. Supernaturally, I really escaped. And here I look back 50 years ago. I still believe with every ounce of my being, the different things that God did for me to supernaturally escape is uh, never, never away from my thinking. And uh, even in the time of struggles, and any pastor who's watching or listening will know the struggles in the ministries, uh, whatever it may be, they're, they're unique to ministry, particularly uh, gospel preaching. Uh, but in all of those struggles, I found my anchor in what God did in my life, saving me, delivering me, uh, and supernaturally bringing me to this point where I am today. Tell us about some of those supernatural things. Uh, you, you reach the point where at age 16, you, you, you give your life to Christ, your life changes. Right. Uh, later on, you, you, you know, God says, that's fine, I'll get you out of here, right. but you've got to promise to serve me. Right. Uh, and we know that you know, 
nothing is impossible with God. Right. And, uh, and ultimately, some incredible things happened. You yes. tell, them, tell us about those. Uh, when I left uh, uh, Egypt and basically with the clothes on my back, I went to Beirut uh, because that's the only way I could get out. Uh, I had already a, an immigrant visa to Australia. But because the American embassy, I wanted to come to the States, but the American embassy closed after the Six-Day War, and there was no relations. So I, uh, again, supernaturally, God provided this uh, marvelous opportunity to go to Australia. But then the government said, no, you can't go. Uh, anybody under the age of conscription for the military cannot even have a passport. But then I discovered that I could have a passport, but if I go as a tourist for a week, and only one week exit visa. And uh, once I got out of the country, uh, as they <laughs> say, the rest is history, well, I never went back. And uh, again, God uh, provided the opportunity in the late 60s for me to go to Australia. And there I met some wonderful godly friends who became friends. And uh, I went to Bible college, seminary, and uh, ordained in Sydney and served in Sydney. But I remember even at the time prior to going into college, I had to had a job. I need to save some money. And in during that time, the organization company I was working for was going to offer me a scholarship to go and do degree in this subject or that subject. And, and um, I was tempted. And then I remember a godly man later became the Archbishop of Sydney looked at me and said, why run away again? And I thought, well, that's a good mm. advice. And um, uh, on, the, on the strength of that, I enrolled and um, uh, came through seminary ordin- ordination, uh, serving in a church. And then later on, of course, God provided an opportunity for me to go on a global uh, basis with another ministry where I was training Christian leaders uh, from all over uh, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. But these were also uh, opportunities for God to kind of give me that experience of being international. And so when the church started, the Lord laid on my heart to plant a church. And I said, Lord, I know nothing about planting a church in Atlanta, Georgia, of all places, in the deep south where I was living at the time. And I was there for seven or eight years. So uh, I was teaching a class in a liberal church, but Bible class, and people were really hungry for the Word of God. I used to have 300 people in my Sunday school class. Wow. And I realized this real hunger for expounding the Word of God. Mm. And so when we planted the church, that those group of people in the class were the nucleus uh, of forming of the church. And this is the Church of the Apostles? Church of Apostles in Atlanta, in Atlanta Georgia. Yeah. And, and, and since then, the church has grown enormously from yes. that relatively small group of people. Right. Now, congregation of over 3,000. Right. To what do you, do you attribute that growth? Well, um, in, in my case, um, it, it, it's only, uh, and, and, there's, and there's not many things, it's just one thing, uh, is what we hear the new members when they come to the new members class. And we make it very hard for people to join. Somebody said to me, if you just make it easier for people to join, you could have 12,000. I said, what do I do with 12,000? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter to me because right now God has uh, blessed and we have an audience of 10 million a week around the world. So it doesn't matter to me. This is God gives the increase. So we make it hard. So when people join, they, 
uh, number one, we know they're born again. They know the Lord. They're not just coming in for whatever reason. So the continuous and the consistent story that we hear from people, they said, in a time when the gospel is being watered down, we wanted to come and hear the unvarnished truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to know that Sunday after Sunday, we're going to see the Word of God opened, and it's not going to be made palatable, uh, watered down, or become a pablum, or people-pleasing. And, uh, and I know others, of course, who have come and said, oh, this is too hard. Mm. We want a softer message, and they go elsewhere, and that's fine. But the, cons- the, the consistent report we get from new members is that we want the unvarnished truth, and we know we're going to get it here. Hmm. And they, they don't have to worry if I'm, you know, going to soften that message or try to please people. Um, this is something they'll tell you. The reason they come, because they know I'm not here to tickle their ears and I'm not there to tell them what they want to hear, but I tell them what God is saying in his word and then apply it to their lives. And so... If you like, we have a church of the remnant. <laughs> <laughs> well, well um, we might pick up on some of that a little bit later in terms of, of, of some of the issues facing the church today. I, I wondered how you manage in terms of your time, because it's a, it's a very large church, yeah. uh, even by, by American standards, sure. it's, a very, it's a very large church. And you, you preach every week still. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you, you pastor, you preach. There's right. Leading the Way, which yeah. we'll, we'll get onto as well, and right. the demands of that. Um, how how do you how do you manage the time and how do you find the energy? Right. Well, you got to have uh, a team around you, and I have a team of fifteen pastors. Every one of them is uniquely gifted in the area, whether it be pastoral, congregational care, evangelism, uh, children ministry, youth ministry, uh, young adults, young families. We have these. Uh, people, this this team that God gave me is amazingly committed, dedicated to their area in which they... We have some on the team who've been senior pastors. Hmm. One has been a senior pastor, the head of his church, for 20 years. And he said, I I hated it. I, I He said, I love the fact that I'm only specializing in what I only want to do. And he said, we're happy for you to, <laughs> to lead because that is, you know, God's gifting and calling on my life. So I'm, I tell them I'm their cheerleader. I'm constantly encouraging, motivating, uh, supporting my team. And that's really the secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, as to my energy, um, I'm going to be 70 next year. And the amazing part is that I have more stamina and energy in my 60s than I did when I was in my 40s. Uh, I work out uh, five days a week and uh, I uh, sleep uh, four or five hours at night. This is just on a good night. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm writing two books a year. I've just signed multi-contracts uh, with publishers. Uh, I've been writing, I've written 35 books, and uh, I've, I'm going to write two books a year. And so I just feel the Lord gives me all the energy that I need to fulfill and complete the calling on my life. Now he can take me home tomorrow, and that's fine. I'm, you know, like Paul, I'm pressed from both sides to be with the Lord, which is great, but to be here to serve the church is also wonderful. Either way, I'm fine. I, I'm not, I, live, I, I do not live in fear. I go to Middle East countries, and I go to the most dangerous spots of the world, 
Uh, and people say, aren't you afraid? I said, no. What can they do to me? And if kill me, I go to heaven. So <laughs> heads you win, tails you lose. You win. <laughs> so you, I win either way. Um, so I'm, you know, he he gives me all the energy that I need until the time comes and calls me home. Let's talk a bit about the birth of leading the way right. uh, as an international ministry, which sprang out of the Church of the Apostles. Yes, of course. Do you remember the the moment in, in the history of the church where where you and the people around you thought we need to, we need to, we need to start something here? Yes. Well, I didn't. They did. Well, it's one particular person who actually died last year. And he kept saying to me, you've got to be in the media. You've got to be in the media. The church has been going a year. And we went from 28 people uh, to um, a handful, about 300 people attending at that time. And uh, he said, you know, you have a unique message. that you need." And I said, no, I'm too busy. I was the only pastor at the time, running haggard, if you like, serving the church. But he tricked me. Actually, he took me to a lawyer's office and we need to put the papers together to start a new ministry, a media ministry. And I went along. I got dragged into everything I'm doing. At the time, you know, the previous 10 years, I served as a managing director of an international organization. I've been around the world, as I said already early, training leaders. And when God called me to do the church, it did not make sense to me. And I kept saying, Lord, you know, I'm going to pastor a small church in Atlanta, Georgia, versus the globe that you have opened for me. I've spoken all over the world, university campuses, churches, and so on. God said, well, you just go along with me, and I'll show you. And so when that started and went on radio, and then uh, that expounded, and then we, God gave us a vision for this dual language program where I speak one sentence in English and a translator speaks it in Arabic, and then we, we heard uh, 3 million young people listening to this mm. in the Arab world. Mm. And then expanded to Mandarin and Cantonese and Turkish. And, and uh, now it's 27 languages uh, all over the world. Japanese was our latest uh, uh, language that we added. And so as we expanded on radio, I thought this was going to be it. But then another pioneer of Christian television in the United States, a man by the name Ben Hayden, uh, uh, came to my office back in 1999, and he said to me, I have known him because he was on television, but he came to me and knocked, literally came into my office and said, God told me two and a half years ago to give you my television ministry. And I said, Ben, I said, I have a redhead at home, uh, my Aussie <laughs> wife, you know, Elizabeth, and she always says, you'll be on Christian television over my dead body, and because there's some things on Christian television, so it leaves a lot to be desired. Sure. And so I, I resisted, and, and he said to me, he said, I delivered the message. I'm out of here. Yeah. But then God really wanted us to start a television ministry, not just for the sake of television ministry, but to be the basis for which now we have a global satellite television station called Kingdom Sat, Malakot in Arabic, and it's translated, everything translated into Arabic. 160 million homes in the Arab world. Kingdom Sat started four hours a day, repeated four times. Uh, five thousand. Then now we had twelve-hour programming. We have uh, sixty-five different programmers from every Arabic-speaking world: preachers, teachers, apologetics. Uh, many of them were former Muslims, and uh, so God really starts things small, and then He takes it on because it's His vision. I don't sit there and say, "Oh, you know, I have a great vision. I want to do this, and I need to do this." No, I I, I would be lying if I said that happened to me. God says, you just obey. 
and you trust me and obey me and I will I'll do the work. Uh, yeah, and he does the work. Yeah. I'm, I, I tell people I'm along for the ride. <laughs> it's interesting. You're talking about the birth of the television ministry. I came across this quote uh, from you. You have to tell me if this is correct or sure. not. Sure. For many years, I said, I'll never go on television. I have a face for radio. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's what I said on the first broadcast, uh, telecast. And I said, uh, I said, but God is the one who literally uh, brought this man into my life. And he said, I've been listening to you on radio. He said, for two and a half years, I kept saying, no, not him. I want to give it to somebody else. And he has a great television ministry. So came in, literally gave us the names, gave us. He looked in the camera and said to his audience, the viewers have been all over the United States. And he said, now this is God's man. I need you to support him. And boy, I mean, that was, uh, wow. and he was a man of integrity who was ready to retire now and to be with the Lord. Um, and that really, I was on his coattail. Uh, if it wasn't for that, I probably wouldn't be on television. Uh, Kingdom Sight would not have started. Uh, but when you think that we have audience here, Arabic-speaking audience in the United Kingdom mm. who are watching uh, Kingdom Sight, and I get a response from, from the UK, from all over Europe, uh, Arabic-speaking people. We had recently a man from Algeria, the letter he's, He's in Paris. He came to the Lord, gave his life to Christ. Uh, so it's now globally. And so I sit back and I said, Lord, you get all the glory because yeah. I didn't necessarily see it. Uh, and the kingdom sat, which uh, strikes me as something that's, that's extraordinarily unique to, yes. to your ministry and the ministry of yes. leading the way. Um, it in particular, seems to be something that, that God has birthed out of your particular background yes. and, and your particular uh, understanding and right. knowledge right. of uh, of the Middle East and of, of of Arabic culture. Do you feel that is uh, particularly something that God has been able to use uh, in terms of what what you've been able to do with your ministry? There's no doubt. There is no doubt in my mind that this is the case. Because I remember when I escaped from Egypt and I ended up in Australia in the late '60s, I literally said, "This is it. I'm not going to go back to the Middle East again." Uh, I was persecuted, and you know, and I know Christians are suffering. And I said, "I'm out of here." And for eight years, I never even thought about it. Uh, but again, I, God tricked me into um, going back and doing more. And I, I remember at the time when I was struggling with the question, and God said, "I did not do all that I did to get you out of Egypt, so that you can pastor an affluent church in Atlanta, Georgia, and live in a cushy life." Mm. Uh, and that is why my relationship with leading the way is I do not receive uh, uh, one P uh, in the UK language. <laughs> and nothing sticks to my hand. I do this as a labor of love. Uh, the church takes care of me and my family, so we, we have no needs uh, that I have to dip into leading mm. the way funds. All of the money give, is get, given to leading the way goes to ministry. Nothing goes, I mean, not even the books that I write, 35 of them, and people, you know, buy tens of thousands of, of my books or receive them through Leading the Way. I don't receive a nickel from that. And so we basically see this, or I see this, as a God thing. Hmm. He wanted it. He's doing it. And he just looked around and found the most unlikely person. And I'm not putting myself down. It's just I believe that with all my heart and says, now you do it. And so I'm, I am glad that all of my background, all of my training, all of my education, uh, from the training in Sydney, University of Sydney, uh, Moore College, to, 
PhD at Emory. All of that God brought together to make what he wanted to make uh, in, in these ministries that expands the world. Just as we come to the end of the first part of our, of sure. our conversation, um, you must have heard over the years some uh, incredible stories of yeah. people oh. who've been impacted by leading the way, by the Kingdom Sat, by the international ministry. Yeah. Um, is, is there one that in particular sticks in your mind yes. as being, you know, th- this is why God has me doing this. Yeah. This is what the ministry is about. Thousands, but I can tell you one that absolutely, I mean, tears me up to think about it. On the Kingdom Sat chan- uh, Arabic channel, we have follow-up teams all over the world, all over the Arabic-speaking world. And we have a number that streams down at the bottom of the screen. If you are in Lebanon, call this number. In Egypt, call this number, and, and so on. And uh, one person in Lebanon called our follow-up man in, in Lebanon. And uh, he didn't know anything about him. Generally speaking, our follow-up team are very cautious. Mm-hmm. They, many of them actually came to the Lord from Islam, and they... They understand, and therefore, they, if somebody said, I want to meet with you because I want to convert, they said, uh, you know, they, they don't know. Anyway, but this man, our follow-up man, even though was suspicious of the person who called, but went anyway, and he shared Christ, and he talked to him, and, and, and did not know who he was. But he happened to be a prince, what they call Amir, that is one of the hierarchies of ISIS. One of the highest people actually pledge allegiance to him. But our follow-up man did not know. And then he left. And then he calls a week later. He said, I've got to see you now. So he went basically to, he said, I saw, I had a dream. And it's a long dream, but our follow-up man said, well, the dream is that Jesus is telling you that he loves you. And he was so in tears. And so he prays to receive Christ. And then at the end, he said to him, he said, now I have a confession to make. The first time I called you, I had a sharp knife in my pocket because I want to slit your throat. But something stopped me. We know it's not something, it's someone. And now this man is an evangelist uh, among his own people, and he's reaching so many people to Christ for Christ. So <laughs> I sit here and I said, God, all of this to lead this one of many, many hundreds of stories all over the globe in Erbil, in northern Iraq, in uh, Syria, Lebanon border, Jordan. And I've been on these borders. I've seen the refugees and I've seen the converts who came to Christ. They're anxious to share their story with me. And so for this, I bow my knees and Cry holy. Fantastic. Uh, we're, doing, we're talking uh, on the profile this week with Dr. Michael Youssef from Leading the Way. We'll be back with part two in just a moment. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Dave Rose and I'm joined this week by Dr. Michael Youssef. And we were talking earlier about um, uh, your background, Dr. Yes. Yusuf, and, and your church and leading the way. Um, I'd like to move on a little bit and talk about some things you've been doing more recently and uh, in particular some issues facing the church today. And it seems like a good place to start is your latest book, uh, The Barbarians Are Here. Mm-hmm. And we have seen 
you know, we're, we're sitting here having this conversation in London, yes. and at the time of recording, um, London has recently seen several months of dramatic and yeah. uh, and, and awful events. Um, uh, tell us about how the book plays into to those sorts of events. And as Christians, yeah. when we're faced with that those sorts of situations, how do you think we are to respond? I'll tell you how the book came about. The book has been inside of me for 20 years. I've written many, many books, mm. uh, commentaries on the Bible, uh, Bible books and so forth. But this one, for 20 years, uh, God has given me the vision of Jeremiah. And as is weeping over what happened to the church in the West. And uh, the, the concept of the book is, is very simple because I'm not only calling the Islamist terrorists uh, barbarians. I'm calling some people in the Church of Jesus Christ, the professing Christians or so-called barbarians also. Here's the, 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 in, in a nutshell. God kept on calling Israel to return to him. Prophet after prophet after prophet. The least, the most, of course, vocal was Jeremiah, and he literally pleading with people to turn to the Lord, and then they wouldn't. In the end, God says, "Okay, I'm taking my hands off." And a bunch of terrorists from Babylon came, not only terrorized Israel, but took them into captivity. And so, I I I began to sense in my bones 20 years ago that as the church in the West weakens turn away from the Lord, get focused on their needs and focused on their things and focused on what's good for church politics and all the stuff that is diverting the attention from the gospel of Jesus Christ as the church in the West departs from the truth and refuse to repent and turn to the Lord, that God says, I'm sending a Babylonians or they are the Babylonians of our day and that's the Islamist terrorists, the extremists. We call them extremists, but... and. And, and so this uh, terrorism, in my judgment, is going to continue until the church repents, if ever. And if not, we're going to end up in an exile uh, of sorts. And so my, um, my d desire for writing this book is to call the church. I'm talking about the Church of Jesus Christ, the invisible uh, universal church, the believers, the remnant, to turn to the Lord with all of their heart and repent of sin, of compromise. And unless that happens, terrorism will be a commonplace. Uh, at the time of our recording here today, uh, I heard uh, uh, that the President of the United States saying in Poland, the question, and this is amazing, I thought, I wonder if you read my book. He said, the question is, would Western civilization survive? And I thought that is amazing because that's exactly the thesis of the book. Uh, saving Western civilization in, in times of terrorism is the subtitle. And so Western civilization came about, we're celebrating 500 years of Martin Luther's uh, nailing the 95 thesis on, yeah. uh, on the door of the church. Western civilization, Everything you see, and, and that, by the way, that is scientific. This is not just a, a preacher talking. I did a PhD in social studies, so I'm not uh, talking about it even as a theologian. But sociologically, there is no doubt that Western civilization, progress, technology, all of that uh, was driven by the Reformation. Initially, the Reformation 
brought people out of darkness into the light of the gospel. And as Western civilization began to embrace the gospel, we're blessed with this modern civilization. Everything we see today is because of the Reformation. And so either we're going to need a new Reformation to bring us back to God or renew our days of old. Somehow we need to get back to the gospel. So what, what? So what do you think that means then, in terms of what the what what an individual needs to do? Uh, you know, if someone's listening to you now, yes. uh, as a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, as a disciple of Jesus, mm-hmm. and someone who who really wants to try and uh, uh, try and ensure that civilization as we know it continues and thrives. Sure. Um, what? How should they individually respond, right. and how should the church corporately respond? Right. First of all, I, I'm not I, I'm not saying that Western civilization is is really what 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 it's at stake. But I'm not trying to make Western civilization survive because Western civilization will not survive without the gospel. And so my first call, my first plea, is with pastors and preachers and church leaders, get back to the gospel. Stop preaching moralism. Stop preaching be nice to others and all that stuff because you cannot be nice without the gospel. <laughs> you know, being nice uh, is, is, is not the, the goal of the gospel. Being converted to Christ is what's going to make a person loving. Uh, and all those people are about tolerance. I said, no, I'm against tolerance. Because tolerance says, you know, I can't stand you, but I'm going to put up with you. But the believer says, I love you, even though you may want to slit my throat, but I love you. That's really the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you may totally differ with me in all the views of life, but I love you because Christ loved me first. And so, first of all, pastors, leaders, church leaders, they need to repent. They need to turn to the Lord. They need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and get away from all this uh, circle under the guise of relevance because the Bible has, is very relevant uh, the second thing, individuals. If you are in a church that is absolutely departed from the truth, don't stay there and support it. But I would go and challenge the pastor first and, and the church leadership. But if they continue to refuse uh, to do this, then you go and find a church that is a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church and join it. Because in the end, uh, you want to be a light in this dark place, you're going to turn into an amber especially if you have no authority. And that's why I started with those in leadership. Then I talked to the individual in the pew. And then be sure yourself living a life that is worthy of the calling. Because I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm not talking about hypocrisy. I'm talking about truth. Because if I live a life that is not reflecting, and I'm talking about private life, public life, they're reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and Christ himself, then my message is in vain. Mm. And so you live uh, and grow in Christ. You be sure that you're walking with the Lord, and then you invite others to come and join with you. Do you think this is the biggest uh, crisis, if you like, facing the Western church today? No question about it. It's, it's, you see, I tell you, the, the number one, and, and there are several, but mm. the number one, what... The apex, uh, the, the, the highlight of that departure is what's called universalism. 
that we always all all religions lead to the same place all all religions lead to god all religions everybody go to heaven when they die universalism as reflected in books and and films like the shack uh, that that universalism is 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 something that that is really invaded first of all the mainland denominations the big denominations now is going to the evangelicals there are many evangelical pastors in the united states who have bought into this and they will never preach repentance of sin not one time including some of the most popular ones on television they've gone on to universalism that is the cry of jeremiah if he was living today turn back to the fact that jesus claimed i am the way the truth and the giver of eternal life the source of life go back to that and you're going to see that God is going to absolutely honor that. The Bible said, I, Scripture said that I honor those who honor me, says the Lord. And so we need to go back to honoring God. And even if, if we lose our life in the process, so what? Do you think part of the reason that, that some areas of the church have moved in that direction is because, I'm thinking of the shack, for example. Sure. Um, is that the, is they're tr- what they're trying to do is emphasize the, the love of God. There right. is a sense that, sure. it, that the general perception of the Christian God is that he, he's trying to spoil our fun. He's giving us all these things that we're not allowed to do. And, <laughs> and, and, and maybe there's a move in the church uh, that it, that's trying to reemphasize that the fact, no, you're, you're, you're loved by God. Right. Um, and and it, is there not, is there not a, a place for that? Is there not a balance to be struck there? Well, what, what loved by God means. You're loved by God, not so you can stay where you are in your sin. You're loved by God that he died on a cross for you so that you might come and be forgiven. Uh, to, to remain in sin and remain in disbelief is, is a mockery to the love of Christ who left the splendor and the glory of heaven, came to earth, had nowhere to lay his head, died a criminal's death on the cross, rose on the third day. All of that is lost if, I'm just saying, you're loved by God, it's okay, just Mm. live any which way you want to, it's okay. Now that is a heresy. And it's not new. It happens throughout the 2,000 years. One of the things I was going to ask you was about church, uh, church attendance. And, and, and here in the UK, we talked a bit about the growth of, of your church earlier. Sure. And here in the UK, we're seeing church attendance uh, fall. Yep. Uh, that, that's true across a lot of the West. Yeah. And uh, what strikes me is that, is that I, uh, perhaps, I don't know whether you agree with this, perhaps in church's attempts to be more relevant and welcoming and, and perhaps leaning towards a, a more universalist right. sort of approach, yeah. the, the church has actually become uh, less interesting, yeah. le- less of a draw for people. And sure. maybe the example of the Church of the Apostles, your church, yeah. is that, uh, is that church, it's one of the secrets of church growth is, as you said earlier, is ensuring the gospel in full. Right. Is at the center of yeah. is at the center of the church. When you think about it, all of the accommodating is not growing the church; is losing people. That's I mean, you you would say even if I was not a Christian, and I think it's a, a, a thing that's not working. There's got to be some. I got to do some self examination. Why it's not working? Why the more I accommodate to the world, the more I'm welcoming people, regardless of whether they love Christ or come to Christ or not. Is, is losing membership and losing attendance, I got to say, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> and, and, and that in itself ought to be a driver to the truth. Mm. And 
uh, you know, there's no, I'll tell you an example. A, a pastor in Arizona came to see me, had lunch with me. Uh, he had 14,000 people, and he was one of those positive-thinking preachers. And then one day he saw a vision, and the Lord said to him, he said, you know, I mean, basically saw a vision of all these people going to hell. So he got up and he said, I'm preaching a false gospel. And he repented publicly, and he began to preach the gospel. Well, he lost 6,000 members that day or that week. But from that moment on, as the church was purged and he began to preach the word of God, it grew back much uh, even greater, but this time people coming to know Christ. So God will bless, mm. and he cannot bless a compromising church. And it may look blessed from the outside, but it's something rotten on the inside. And therefore, I, again, I, I love pastors. Uh, I used to say, you know, before I became a pastor, when I was a traveling itinerant speaker, uh, I knew everything about what pastors should do. Uh, but then I repented when I became a pastor. <laughs> so I'm not pointing fingers. I am pleading as a pastor who knows the temptations and knows the pain of pastoring. Very few people really understand the pain of pastoring until mm. they pastor. Mm. But as, as one of the pastors, I am pleading that have a vision of Christ and the gospel and begin to preach it. Don't be afraid because you pleasing God is much more uh, important for your eternity than pleasing people. Before you run out of time... <coughs> Uh, before we run out of time, I do just want to uh, ask you about the the vice presidential delegation that you were you were a part of. Now, this uh, I know that the the uh, so important to the work of leading the way has been the issue of Christian persecution right. in the Middle East, and that's something that that your ministry is 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 hugely involved in right. in working right. in working with our persecuted family uh, around the world. And and you, th- th- this was an Egyptian parliament. Delegation. Have well, I got that right? No, no. What happened, uh, the Christian church leaders in Egypt invited me uh, to come and meet with the uh, political leaders, cabinet ministers. Uh, I spoke with, uh, in parliament to the Speaker of the House and the leaders of the chairman of different committees, as well as the, uh, uh, the man, the chief of staff of Mr. Sisi. And so we had this uh, great opportunity to talk openly and, and uh, well, uh, one of the people that I brought with me is a member of Leading the Way board, actually, who now happened to be the chief of staff of the vice president. Mike Pence is a godly man, loves the Lord. I mean, he loves the Lord as much as I do. And uh, so there was, uh, because of uh, the, his chief of staff was with me, um, these people were taking notice. And we talked about persecution. We talked about the Christian uh, Christians in the Middle East and in Egypt in particular. Every one of those leaders have assured me uh, that they are more anti-Islamist than the Obama administration was. And, and, and they made no bones about it. They spelled it out like that. And they said, we want the United States and all the British and the uh, European uh, parliaments to do what we did, and that's called the Muslim Brotherhood Terrorist Organization. And of course, I understand the politics in the West is very different. Uh, so every one of those leaders that uh, I had the privilege of meeting was very assuring that the current government in Egypt abhors persecution and and the death of innocent uh, Christians. And they are doing everything they can in order to see to it 
that the Christians in the churches are protected as much as you know humanly possible. But the church in Egypt, I mean, is growing in leaps and bounds. Uh, the church leaders told me that after the bombing of Palm Sundays of two churches, that collectively they believe that the churches on Easter Sunday had maybe something like two to three million people more than the previous year's Easter. Uh, there were three to four hundred people outside of the churches, all of the denominations, 17 Protestant denominations, as well as Catholic and Protestant, and the Coptic, of course, is the largest church. Hmm. And so as if people were saying, okay, we're going to go to church, kill us if you want. And that was a great statement mm. uh, to the Islamists. We're not afraid of you. Uh, and there are, you know, the official number is 10 million Christians, but in reality, they're probably something like 15 to 17 million Christians because some of them are underground. Mm. And again, that, that's a pattern that we see, isn't it? That the, the, the church grows most strongly under the under the harshest persecution. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the flip, if you like, yes. to, to what we see in the West. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, kind of... When there's no persecution, freedom of religion, people can go to church and not afraid who's going to see them or who's going to tell on them. Uh, we stay at home and sleep in <laughs> on Sunday morning. But when you know your life is on the line and you could be going to see Jesus any moment, you know, the church really thrives. And somebody who said in the early days, second century, uh, 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 early Christian fathers said, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And whenever the there is bloodshed on behalf of, of by the you know of of Christians. That's when the church grows. Mm. And maybe what we need in the West is a first class persecution. Maybe, maybe, Doctor Yusuf, we're almost out of time. How can we pray for for you because of uh, the 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 incredible work that we've touched on sure. of, of the church of leading the way of the kingdom sat of the the work that's going on around the world. Uh, how? How can we most effectively pray for you and your ministry? Well, first of all, for me personally, is that I continue and remain faithful to the truth of the gospel until the Lord. Now, my, my prayer to, now that I'm going to be 70 next year is that, Lord, I want to finish well. And so uh, uh, I would deeply appreciate uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to pray that prayer on my behalf. Then secondly, to pray for God to, because he's the one who gives the increase. He is the one who adds to the number of believers that continue to pray for the persecuted. In our church, there is no prayer meeting, whether it be midweek prayer meeting, public prayer on Sunday, whatever it may be, without praying for the persecuted. And mm -hmm. I want all Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people to pray for the persecuted, that they'll be strong. And then, of course, ultimately, pray for an awakening in the West. Because without that, uh, our future is really doesn't look very good. And so those are the three things I would encourage people to pray for. Dr. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us. It's been thank fantastic to spend this time in, in conversation with you. And of course, you can hear Dr. Yusuf and Leading the Way weekday mornings, 9 a.m. here on Premier Christian Radio. And to uh, hear more profiles, you can head online, of course, to premierchristianradio.com. And if you want to read more fantastic interviews uh, with Christian leaders, then you can get your free sample copy of Premier Christianity magazine. Go to premierchristianity.com for that and stay where you are. I'm back in a couple of minutes with this week's Premier Playback on Premier Christian Radio.